0: our garden show I'm Virginia Hayward and I hope you're all warm tucked up warm in bed and listening to us with a cup of tea this morning I have got two guests with me both of whom are excellent horticulturalists with various other interests as well Tim Sampson and Simon Ricard. good morning Simon
1: good morning Virginia
0: and you made
1: it this time? Yeah, think, yes, it? I made it this time. That's right. Last time, uh, last time I was on with Tim, uh, I got a phone call at 7.30 in the morning. I was tucked up at bed, in bed at home in Trentham, an hour away. he said, where are you? And I said, I'm in bed. Where where, where what else would I be? <laughs> Why are you calling me at <laughs> 7 o'clock in the morning, you idiot? <laughs> and that
0: is our other voice, Tim Sanson. Good morning, Tim. Morning,
2: Virginia. Morning, listeners.
0: And Tim, you got here well.
2: I got here well. Well, I actually, being Anzac Day today, I had an early start because I had to drop my daughter out at the dawn service. So, for once, I was up for two reasons on a Sunday morning. Normally, it's just me sneaking out of the house. I could make as much noise as I wanted this morning.
0: Well, we all come a distance. I'm from the Yarra Valley. You're from Trentham. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, and I'm coming from Arthur's Seat, so we're coming from all, all points of the compass.
0: And it's one of the things about this show. People are always coming quite a distance.
2: Yeah, it's well, it's and it's and I always find it's driving in. It's a sort of, I guess, I'm connecting with the day. And as I, as I'm driving in I'm, from my direction, I see all the um, all the hot air balloons, and, yes. and think, oh, what are they looking at across across Melbourne? Look, what's the green space they can see across the the, the spread of Melbourne? It Would be an inter- interesting perspective to see how much greenery, how much bitumen there is across Melbourne.
0: I see them in the Yarra Valley. One time I drove past and they'd actually landed on, just off the highway at wandan Oh. Oh, well, that was extraordinary. <laughs> I hope <laughs> that was intentional. Oh, exactly. <laughs> I'm too scared to go up in them. I've got a slight height problem. I was in a hit and run on my bicycle many, many years ago, and ever since that I've been a bit scared of heights. <laughs> <laughs> was it a penny-farthing? Was it a tall bike? <laughs> no, no. Whoever hit me got out... Looked at me and then hopped back in his car and drove off and left me there. Oh, really? It wasn't a very nice thing to do. No. That was in London in the 80s, but it has left me with a feeling that the ground's not safe, you know. Right. I have to stay firmly affixed to it, so I have trouble with ladders as well. (laughs) Well, it's
2: good that you're a gardener, where you're in touch with the ground.
0: All the time, yes. Dirty fingernails. Wash my hair to clean my fingernails. That's how you tell a real gardener. Is that right? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Hang on. So, Simon, what have you been doing lately?
1: It's been a very busy month for me, actually. Um, a month ago uh, this week, I was doing the Australian Landscape Conference. I was speaking at the Australian Landscape Conference, which was incredibly inspiring. You know, they, they had fantastic speakers. It, it's a bi, uh, biennial event. Um, last year, it should have been on, but of course, it was mm. cancelled due to COVID. Um, so it was on at the Melbourne Convention Centre this year, but we had people watching on from interstate and from overseas. Had a lot of nice comments from New Zealand gardeners, actually. Uh, and a really inspiring range of speakers, um, people like um, Tom and Sue Stewart-Smith in the UK and, and James Hitchmore, Claudia Vest in uh, America and uh, uh, who else, Midori Shintani in Japan. Really, really inspiring people. And at the end of the whole conference, I just felt like going home and napalming my garden and starting again from scratch. And I think this is really the sign of, of people who are interesting thinkers and good communicators, is they make you feel like you've done everything wrong, but you're just itching to go home and raise it all to the ground and start again. So I know
0: exactly that feeling at the moment. I walked into my garden the other day and thought, hmm. Oh, it's so boring. Is that it? Yeah, it's <laughs> so boring. 16 years on, you know. Oh, it's so boring. Yeah. It's, but Stephen came to stay last weekend and he said, right, that's got to go, that's got to go. And I thought, Stephen's garden is so overplanted and so full. Which Stephen's uh, that? Stephen Ryan. Stephen Ryan, <laughs> Ryan yes. <laughs> He's one to talk, is, isn't he? <laughs> exactly, exactly. But anyway, I did get out with the loppers this week, took yeah, off.
2: But I think that's part of gardening. Absolutely. It's, it's always a state of flux and change. It's not. Exactly. It's not dipped in aspic and left left in one state I mean, I think,
0: and if it was you'd be bought
2: well, yeah, absolutely I think for me gardening is the journey it's the interaction you know I, I really rail against the whole sort of maintenance free concept because it's for me the garden is something I do um, and it's my little time away, my time out, my time for me. So I love it when there's jobs to do. In fact, I'm, I'm bored when there's not jobs to do. You know, like, I'm, I'm not quite taking napalm to my garden, <laughs> so, but, but I'm certainly clearing areas or replanting areas, rethinking areas, which, look, any time is a good time, but this is a perfect time to be mm. doing that. Well, indeed. that's the
0: other thing I think. I, I, I wanted to prune more than I could because the bees are still very active, mm. and I, my garden is wonderful in that it, it is in flower now, and it will be in flower through most of winter. You know, I counted last year, I counted my camellia trees. There's 31. Oh, really? You, know, wow. you know, so they come out bit by bit. And then I've got lots of wattles. and they. they yeah, come well, out a lot of up, native plants. Lots of brilliant Whether they, whether they be
2: in indigenous, Victorian or Australian plants, have their flowering season in winter. So.
0: And indeed, a lot of the South African. I've got a lot yes, of South African yeah. plants. And, you know, all those plants that come from hot climates that would prefer to do mm. their hard work out of the hot, 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 hot summer. Yeah. Yeah. so I love my garden and and it's interesting, you know, like today Bolabek is open for the Open Garden Scheme, Bollebeck in Mount Macedon, everybody, if you're looking for a day out that's the place to go, it's a beautiful big garden I even think yes, I do know the address, it's 370 Mount Macedon Road so if you're looking for a, a day out, the place to go is Mount Macedon today and this is their last one for a couple of months and it always strikes me as odd that we that open gardens have always closed their gardens in su- in winter, mm. and yet left them. I'm, I don't let people come to my garden in February and March, early mm. March, because it's. Well, yeah,
2: it's it's mm. it's the difficult time for yes. us really. That's
1: I mean that's one of the things I talked about at the Australian Landscape Conference is that we in southern Victoria at least need to start thinking about um winter as being the growing season and summer as the dormant season. You know, all of the British garden literature that we have or the northern hemisphere garden literature talks about it being the other way around, you know, winter's a, a time of dormancy and summer's a time of exuberance. And really summer is the is or heat rather is the limiting factor on plant growth in Australia. So I think we need Need to shift our thinking about that and, and start concentrating on the cooler months and, and forget about summer. It's going to be brown. Let's learn to love that, you know, and rather than fighting against it and trying to be England really hard.
0: Absolutely, and and also this year different. Mm. But for the last couple of years, yeah. I've mm. had I've run out of water, mm. garden water. I've still had house water, but I've run out of garden water in Octo in um, in March. Well, you've got the, no
2: water at all, do you, Tim? Well, I'm, my, my garden is watered. Well, I don't water my garden. I water my vegetable garden because I've only got rainfall and a, and a tank, which is actually the house tank as well, and I have two teenage daughters, so there's not much water left for the garden. In fact, I've only got one left. Now one's moved out. Maybe I can expand the garden. <laughs> um, but I, I yes. just
0: kept putting in new tanks. I've now got one, two, three, four, five, six tanks.
2: Well, I've, I've limited myself quite deliberately, and um, there are parts of it all of my garden except for the vegetable garden survives on rainfall mm. um, and I think it's this, this, the same concept that Simon's talking about is this, this is a consciousness we have to have is that if we want an exuberant summer herbaceous perennial border we're going to have to water it hard mm. um, but in our in our climate that's not appropriate, even if it's not just my water tank, it's the resources of water generally mm. that are available. And let's not be fooled by the, the you, season we've just had yes. this is an abnormal season.
0: Oh, it's been wonderful. Mm. And if you look at somewhere like the Botanic Gardens, they've cut their water usage by over 45% over the last yeah. decade. Mm-hmm. Yep. and yet still have, because of course they have a responsibility to have a beautiful green garden in yep. the summer because so many people but, use it.
2: But you can do that, and this, yep. is, this is something that um, we had the Landscape Conference come visit us at Heronswood as part of the, as the, the garden tour beforehand and taking the, the groups around and uh, talking with Bill, our head gardener and presenting what we're doing in, in the garden at Heronswood, in, as, which is at headquarters of the Diggers Foundation. We've got Significant parts of the garden that are have, have the sprinklers switched off completely, they've been shut down. Um, gravel areas of garden or gravel mulch is used where it's, it's you know, plantings which are you know, it's evergreen or their form and color using foliage form fol- and as well as pops of color, drought tolerant bulbs. Mm. And then that means that that sort of, you know, that half of the garden which is no longer requiring extra irrigation, we can use some of that water in our productive parts of the garden. So we're expanding the vegetable garden. We're, we've got plans for a new seed demonstration garden, but that's where we can actually maximise our use of water and in a, cl- a climate-appropriate way.
1: Mm. I think what Tim was saying about, you know, you, you can still have pops of colour and so forth. It's just selecting the right plants, really. And, um, you know, there, there are some plants that do do their thing in summer. They, they either produce some kind of colour Or like summer flowering bulbs, which flower, you know, from sort of in February and March as the beginning of their growing season. You know, they put out their foliage then in Mm -hmm. late autumn and winter. Or there are plants which are evergreen and look beautiful all year round. So at Heronswood, they've got these fantastic big agave, attenuata, nova, the blue agave Mm -hmm. in in the driveway, which just hold the whole thing together with lots of coloured fluff around it. It, uh, it really was, a, it's a spectacular yeah. planting.
2: Well, that, that's the planting on the drive. Mm. Yeah, it's got those, and, it, it's, and it's also got, in amongst it, so it's got some euphorbias, it's got sedums, it's got even something which is as pretty as the evening primrose, mm-hmm. the Owenothera, which... Which is weedy. Which is, but not in this context, because this is not getting irrigated, so it's not getting away, mm. and it's just flowering on and on and on, and providing little pops of colour mm. without that drenching, without that massive feeding and effect.
0: And you've, you've got those beautiful euphorbias that have,
2: that are yeah. almost a tree. A the tree lamy, yeah, lamia, I true euphorbias. Yeah, They're beautiful. And the planting of those mixed with aonium, so the sort of soft succulent look. Mm. You know, we're trying, I guess, to experiment with plants that are, you know. I guess, arid in nature, so they'll, they'll take these conditions of no, no watering, but are not necessarily spiky and hard and mm. prickly, which is, I guess, a, a perception that um, there's been out there that arid gardens or dry gardens are either native uh-huh. or they're cactus. Mm. Mm. So what we're, what we're creating is these garden areas
1: that are soft and exuberant.
0: And when, you, when people say, oh, well, you should have a native garden, oh, yes, I'll grow some stuff from the rainforest for a like. I mean... <laughs> Let's well, us yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, that's another thing I mentioned at the Garden Conference in my lecture, you know, like, hands up who's ever killed a brown baronia, you know. That's a native plant. Or, or a waratah, which is, yeah. a, you know, oh, from high a summer rainfall mm. areas, yeah. like, like you say. And you see that even here in Melbourne, waratahs grow beautifully in the Dandenongs mm. with basalt soil and summer rainfall, and they're pretty substandard here on the, in the city plain because yeah. they don't have the right soil or rainfall. Ranging, I'm too so. high.
0: They grow in the Yarra Valley, but they grow with people who are on creeks, yeah, whereas right. I'm on top of a ridge mm-hmm. and I find work and the thing I really, I lived in London for 20 years so I was completely into um, absolutely doing nothing in February except reading seed catalogs mm. and books because mm. that, was, that was life. That's the tradition, yeah, the and northern course, hemisphere tradition. Yep, yeah, And the tradition for me now is exactly the same, somebody mm. wants to come and see my garden in February, I say no it's, <laughs> it's effectively <laughs> <Yes>. dormant <laughs> because it's so hot and mm. it's all looking even the salvias are going oh mm. I'm tired, I'm mm. hot you know, so the garden is no good, but but what when I go to diggers in the um, up at Olinda, oh they have a Davidia, I like yeah. the handkerchief tree. W- I love Davidias, and you've got a huge Davidia. But
1: Dandenongs are a completely different climate mm. to Melbourne, yeah. even though they're only a few kilometres away. You mm. know. And, and I think that's true of, you know, what does this concept of a native plant mean? I've just been on Norfolk Island, which is part of Australia officially, but it's a tiny little speck in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. It's closer to New Caledonia than it is to Australia. It's closer to New Zealand than it is to New Caledonia. So should we think of the Norfolk Island pine, their iconic plant, as a, as a native plant or, or not? Mm. You know, New Caledonia is actually on a different continent to Australia. It's, it's on the mm. sunken continent of Zealandia which um, is the size of Australia, and most of it's underwater. There's only a couple of little nubbits that pop up, New Zealand, New Caledonia, and, and Norfolk Island. So, you know, is that a native plant? And if the answer is, is, is yes, even though it's closer to New Caledonia than it is to us, what does that mean for plants from Perth in Melbourne, for example, mm. you know, which is 4,000 kilometres
0: but away? But Perth has much the same rainfall as we do. So, mm. so there's some But a lot more
2: evaporation. W- yes. And, and True. it's it's this... I think in, the, in that sort of climate mapping context, it's... it's Rainfall versus temperature and the the, the impact of evap- evaporation that determines the heat stress. And I think this is something that exactly. I mean, I was talking to um, Professor Peter May, who's um, formerly of, of of Burnley, and he's he's thinking quite hard, uh, and a lot of other people are too. He's following some of the, the thinking of Oliver Filippi in 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 the Mediterranean around what is how how is it best to map climate maps or climate zones horticultural zones. Um, traditionally, and even we've done this at, at Tiggers, is we've used the USDA, um, climate zones, which are basically a hardiness around cold survival. You know, mm-hmm. their, their limiting factor is freezing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and their, and their chart goes well into, you know.
1: Minus 20 yeah,
2: and. <laughs> minus 30, minus 40, you know, these, these temperatures that we don't ex- have at all. So how appropriate is it for us? So we've,
0: It has to be be adjusted. It has
2: to be. And we're doing a bit of work and thinking about this right now.
0: And, of course, this is... I mean, the Botanic Gardens has developed a strategy, a 90-year strategy, Mm. because in planting trees, for example, hopefully they're going to last at least 90 years, so you have to be planting for something that is going to happen to our climate. Can I just say... They're
1: assuming it's going to be the same climate as Dubbo has now, by the way. So they're planning for Dubbo climate in Melbourne.
0: This is the 3CR Garden Show. I'm Virginia Hayward and you are listening to Tim Sampson and Simon Rickard. If you wish to give us a ring, ring us on 94190155, or you can send us a text on 0488809855. That's the 3CR Garden Show with Tim Sampson, Simon Rickard and Virginia Hayward. I think the Dubbo story, of course, we don't know that it will be Dubbo. So this is the difficult thing. We can't be sure how it's going to turn out. We know it's going to change. Mm-hmm. We know it's going to be hotter.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I think, we, I think we know pretty clearly that, yes, it's going to get warmer, and the, re- and the response to that is going to be sorry, hotter, but then more volatile rainfall. Yes. And, and this is what... I mean, you're seeing this a lot of urban planning or planning land planning, really, is in our climate around here, it's going to be hotter, hotter extremes in summer, longer periods of dry, and then these deluges of storms that are going to come through as the weather system gets more volatile. So there is, there is potential in, in designing our landscapes and thinking about our gardens to capture these events. Um, if you think about, you know, I guess the summer we've just had has been one of those sort of regular rainfall. It's, it's been a really mild summer or moderate, moist summer. Been a really hot summer when you get three or four massive storms that drop, drop probably more rain, but you lose most of it. Yes. How do we nurture our soil? And your garden loses it. Well, it, it it this is off the question: so fast. Is How do we capture that? How do we become a sink for this for for rain water in our gardens and our landscapes? Because that's going to be far more effective to managing and producing gardens than letting it run through the the water systems and polluting the bays.
0: And of course, we have cities that are so hard. So all that water runs off so fast. Yeah. We need to start thinking about making our, I mean, making porous
1: asphalt or
0: whatever, you know.
1: I mean, this was the the initial impetus for the green roof movement in the United States was um, managing stormwater. Mm. So Ed Snodgrass is a friend of mine. He's the kind of the green roof guru. And he says, you know, in Australia, mostly we don't need green roofs for water management because our stormwater systems are so well done and efficient and we don't have that kind of rainfall. But he said in the eastern United States where they are, they need to be able to, to cope with these deluges and, as, you know, as Tim says, and um, absorb all that water. And that's what the green roofs yeah. are for over there. So we might have them for a different purpose, for, for insulation or, or for reducing um, heat absorption or something like that. But in the United States, it's very much about controlling And
0: if that's the case, storm water. we also have to think about how we're going to keep those plants alive on the roofs through that's February right. And March. So it's a very yeah.
1: particular suite of plants that get used. And mm. in the case of the ones in the United States, they need to be able to, to become very, very desiccated, but then they need to be able to absorb huge volumes of water very, very mm. quickly without exploding and dying or rotting. Like you canna. know, so it's, it's actually, well, no, because they won't take the desiccating mm. part of the, mm. you know, and if they're also only growing in 10 centimetres of substrate on a roof so that the roof doesn't collapse on the building, then mm. cannas are an, not a candidate. It tends to be more things like mm. small Succulent plants, which can absorb lots of water quickly, um, and things with C4 metabolisms. So, yeah. Anyway.
2: So stone crops, sedums,
1: exactly, house leaks, sort of these, these things, yeah. things. Yeah, Which interestingly, are traditional a, a traditional. traditional roof plugging that's plants.
2: That's right. Yeah. yeah, that's what they what, what they
1: were in well, back in to stop Europe. leaks in houses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and fires on roofs. Yeah, yeah and thatched roofs. Yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> yes, it's it's ironic. And I, I hear that diggers has acquired another garden
2: yeah, so i guess I guess i 'll start that story i 'll wind that story back a little, perhaps if I can, please do. Um, I guess many of our listeners will know that um, uh, the diggers know, know the diggers Club, so Diggers Club has been running for forty years or a bit more since one thousand nine hundred and seventy eight um, and we and Diggers Club has about eighty thousand and eighty four thousand members across the country now, so and this was was all all began back in the late '70s with Clive and Penny blazy. In their backyard in middle Park, in their little garage, you know, there 's some wonderful apocryphal stories of Clive cycling down to the post office to get to get his mail order orders and then cycling back the afternoon with plants and seeds to go out so it 's got this wonderful um, story but about oh it's ten years ago this year, um, Clive and Penny and their family um, donated all of the, the the diggers Club itself and the gardens which were owned by the Diggers Club, which is the St. Earth Garden and the Heronswood Garden into a not for profit foundation so um, and I now work for for the diggers Foundation, so everything that the diggers club does generates income as a I guess as a social enterprise that it, that is plowed back into the diggers foundation uh, and so we're ten years into that foundation it's taken some time to sort of build its its momentum um, and, and we see the foundation uh, analogous to I guess something like the Royal Horticultural Society in the UK which is a, you know, a benevolent garden charity. Um, you know, they've obviously got three or 400 years history behind them and we're in our infancy at 10 years. Uh, or, and, and I guess another allied institution would be something like the Seed Saver Exchange in the, in the United States because obviously Diggers has been quite um, prominent in the promotion and preservation of heirloom vegetables. Um, so that's the sort of the background on on the foundation. So when you ask me about our our um, latest acquisition in quote marks, which I'm doing for radio, so you can hear me. <laughs> um, they, so we've had a long association, or a, or a eight or ten year association with uh, Cloud Hill, which is Jeremy and Valerie's garden up in um, up in Alinda. Um, so Diggers, the Diggers Club, has had a, a retail outlet there, and we've had an association with Jeremy where uh, Diggers members can visit the garden. Uh, as part of their membership because all of our gardens are free entry if you're a club member. Um, but what, what we've done as a foundation in the last um, few months is we've worked on an arrangement with Jeremy and Valerie that the foundation will take over the ownership of, of um, Cloud Hill in time. So it's an arrangement that we've set up with them which gives... Jeremy and Valerie, the certainty that this garden will live on beyond them. Will survive. Yeah, and this is what the Diggers Foundation is set up to do. We're preserving gardens, preserving the practice of gardening, preserving traditions of gardening, uh, and as well as preserving vegetable varieties and home-appropriate plants and home-garden-appropriate plants. We, we want to celebrate and, and, I guess, give that long-term continuity to, to wonderful gardens in Australia. So Cloud Hill, whilst... Cloud Hill, Cloud Hill will stay under the the curation of Jeremy you know, for the for as long as he wants to, and I think that's part of it as well, is that we we want we want to protect his legacy, but also you know, allow him to keep on developing this wonderful garden that is a creation that's popped out of his head, and it is and know, it is sublime. an extraordinary garden. It is a sublime garden. Um, he's he's written a piece in our latest magazine coming out in winter about the trees of uh, the, and the the story of the trees. The, yeah, there's, a, there's a, a great storied piece around what Cloud Hill is as a garden and what it was. It was originally a, a nursery, nursery, called Rangeview Range mm-hmm. View Nursery, and there's a long association with plant plant hunters um, of of an era, sort of you know 50 to 100 years ago, who were bringing in plant material. And there's some really important specimens that came from some of that horse trading on plant trading, not horse trading, plant trading mm-hmm. that went on. Um, in particular, the, there's a couple of aces. Um, the two Aesopalmatums that sit opposite the terrace are, are probably the best specimens of, those, of those, those, that species, or that, that cultivar, in Australia, if, if not, given the conditions they grow in, if not across many and, Western gardens. And
0: you have a calmia, a huge calmia in the nursery yep. section, which is an extraordinary... I mean, if you saw that tree in Britain, you'd think it was beautiful. Yeah,
2: and I think Jeremy would say this, and he may well have said this on this radio program when he's on, but... He's had gardeners from the UK and gardeners from the States come across and, and marvel at, at the performance of these plants outside of their range in his mm-hmm. garden.
0: But so. one of the things that we're beginning to work out in, in Australia is the difference that European and North American trees have here. We've, we've got some plants in the botanic gardens that are just so much bigger than, than mm. what it grows in California their native area. But, of course, they don't stop growing in the summer, I mean in the winter, mm. you know, because, because we've, got, we've had such a beneficial climate, so they don't stop growing. So the, the, the wood is not as hard as it is in...
1: It's
2: that concept of exotic vigour mm. outside of their range. I've seen this with, and there's a, there's a fantastic eucalyptus globulus, a blue gum, in the Auckland Botanic Gardens. It's
1: enormous. Mm. Like I've never seen I was going big. to say the same thing. Eucalyptus globulus on, on, in Lake Tianao in the South Island of New Zealand are just yeah. vast.
2: And then you realise how old they are. You look up how old are it, they? Not that old. <laughs> like they're not old yeah. and you think these things are
0: enormous. enormous so there's that
2: yeah. concept of outside of your range yeah. or outside of your limitations of the ecology that you evolve in that you get this pop of growth. And, and then and the, the
0: question m- is, will these these trees live here yeah. as long as they do in North America or in exactly, Northern Europe. Yeah. Possibly
2: not. But Very possibly yeah. not.
0: And they don't form rings in the same way. Well, I don't have the dormancy. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. They, they would have a sort of a growth spurt and a slow phase. So There'll be a, a faint ring, but mm-hmm. they won't be as delineated. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So it is, it's quite interesting. And, of course, we don't know this stuff yet because you know the white fellows have only been here 200 and whatever years. Mm-hmm. So we don't really know how some of these trees are going to exist and yeah. that's
2: why it's important that i mean I, I guess the the benefit for for jeremy in in and valerie for for cloud Hill having this life beyond their life uh, is that these journeys can continue he he could he i mean it's quite possible he could have sold that property at the end of his life to someone who bought it as a piece of real estate and lived in the house and didn't care about the garden
0: or well, more than that subdivided or
2: right? yes any of those things mm. so the the treasures that we have in gardening, gardening takes a lifetime or longer. You know, you need almost four lifetimes mm. to learn. And if you think of things like, you think of the the weight the weight the arboretum in in Adelaide, that's an experiment if you like. That's been running for 120 odd years in dry climate appropriate trees. And if if that just got raised to the ground and developed, we would lose a massive resource mm. for the future mm. proofing of our urban and peri urban areas. That's
1: right. Yeah. Yep. Mm.
0: Yes, it's it is. It's very. It is all very interesting. This is the thing that's so wonderful about horticulture. You know, you, it, it it never stops developing. It never stops changing. Mm. There's always something going There's on. There's lots to learn.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So it's
2: we're thrilled that um, Cloud Hill has has has. It's I guess the future of Cloud Hill is secure. That's that's That
0: a, is wonderful. And does this mean that over the next half century? Diggers may well take on another garden.
2: Oh, absolutely! There will be more gardens to come. Well,
0: I, see, I think that's wonderful too, because mm. one—it's a tragedy when you see a garden lost, mm. and there are gardens that really do need yeah to they, be preserved. And I think
2: if you look at, I mean, look at the that, that I guess the, the Diggers Club and the Diggers Foundation now um, as the as the central fun, central um, I guess uniting body. Um, back in 1984 was when Clive and Penny. Bought Heronswood property, so it's a historic house, and developed a garden. Uh, so that was, you know, the first step in preserving gardens. Then, it must be nearly twenty odd years ago. Tommy Garnett, who was the creator of the Garden of St. Earth, offered the garden to, to to diggers, and that's been now taken off. So there's three gardens now. We we need to expand out of Melbourne next, I
0: think. <laughs> well, you can't say St. Earth all. In fact, none of well, them beyond are in the, Melbourne. Yeah, they're not in <laughs> Melbourne.
2: But, uh, well, they're within driving distance of Melbourne, I suppose. Yes, out of Victoria. Out they're. of Victoria. That would mm. be
0: a big move. Yeah. Because, of course, you have to garden them. So you have to have staff. So, you know, as, yeah. as, as you spread, this will be, become an issue, how to manage.
2: And this is this is, I guess this is the mission. Well, it is absolutely the mission of the Diggers Foundation. We're... We began life as a as a diggers club where you could buy a product and you still you know club members can and always will be able to you know buy interesting rare things through our mail order file or in our retail stop shops. but as time goes on it'll be much more around the philanthropy and uh, advocacy for gardeners and how we sustain that is that 's part of our foundation mission we, we want to do with these things that are not necessarily commercial so
0: and Stephen Ryan, and I are both. Um, on the board of Plant Trust which Uh is an organisation specifically trying to preserve garden plants and of course we have we have, I mean we're very bad in Australia at losing Mm. fauna and flora but we do have people very concerned to save Australian plants and Australian Mm. animals but Plant Trust is actually about trying to save things that are growing here in gardens because they disappear as well and when we have gardens registered, when, when we have um, species registered with us that are from botanic gardens, where well, we have some sense of longevity, but so many of our collectors are actually individuals, hmm. and of course that that collection becomes threatened when when these people age yeah, they can no longer manage it there
2: 's been a long tradition of i guess of custodians of plant collections this is
1: and it 's a dying tradition
0: absolutely and it 's something we need to.
1: Reinvigorate And need to talk about, yes The Botanic Gardens has recently um, uh, installed a new cactus and succulent garden Designed by Andrew Laidlaw And most of the plants for that collection um, were collected back in the sort of interwar period um, And they were owned by an elderly gentleman um, whose surname is Field I've forgotten his first name Robert, I think That's right Robert Field, up in northern Victoria. Mm-hmm. I actually know his, his grandson, Chris, who's a, an opera singer. But um, he Just col- near Shepparton. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Yeah. So um, those plants had been grown there since they were collected from you know, their native countries in an expedition um, much earlier in the 20th century, and now they've found their way to this fantastic brand spanking new mm. garden in, in the Botanic Gardens, which I'd encourage everyone to go and see. It's really thrilling, actually. And, of course, um,
0: one of... One of- Somebody who used to work for the gardens, had worked for the gardens for 30 years, drove past that, mm-hmm. saw it, and thought, oh, look at that collection, and and drove in and knocked on the door yeah. and said, oh, hello.
2: And these are the resources that and, are out and, there. And,
0: and he said, oh, my family want me to bulldo- bulldoze. Yeah, you know, and wouldn't a... that have been a shame? Oh, mm-hmm. it would have been shocking.
2: It's, it's analogous to... Um, I, p- Families having heirloom varieties of, of vegetables in their, in, their, in their collection or in their lineage, and they're handing them down for generation to generation. If you don't know they're there, how do we ever... Preserve Absolutely. them, and there's a risk that the yeah the next generation bulldozes them, or they, they fall out of cultivation altogether.
0: And people, mm. or people are just they go out of fashion.
2: Yeah. Mm. You know. So where's the repository that, so they can come back one day? Because yes. if they're gone, they're gone. For they're forever. gone. They're gone. Yeah. And, I
0: mean, with roses, for example, which there's no chance that roses will disappear, but so many of the old roses will because there are new roses invented every year, and mm. so and, and they're the ones that are, are talked about, are pushed. Yeah. And we need to think about ones that might disappear, ones that, and of course the thing with Australia is we will not get plants in with the ease that we have.
1: That's right. I mean, that was my point with this cactus collection is they were collected from their native parts of the the Americas Mm. and, um, you know, we might not be able to import them again. Well, probably not. this,
0: This is the 3CR Garden Show. I'm Virginia Hayward and with me are Tim Sampson and Simon Ricard. If you wish to give us a ring, ring us on 94190155, or if you wish to send us a text, 0488 You can also send us an email, 3cr.gardening at gmail.com. So do contact us if you fancy. Yes, I think, I think trees, gardens, all these things have to be protected. What was Norfolk Island like, Simon?
1: Well, really interesting, actually. Um, as I say, it's a tiny, tiny speck in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Um, it only has 147 species of, of plant native to the island, and of those, only 51 are endemic. So um, endemic means that they're uh, native to an immediate local area. They, you know. So, for example... Um, uh, let me have a think. Looking at, at animals, the, in birds, the grey fantail, you know, we have a grey fantail here in Australia. That's native or indigenous to Australia. It's also indigenous in New Zealand and indigenous in Norfolk Island. But something like the um, the koala is endemic to Australia. You know, it only lives in Australia. Or the helmet of honey eater is endemic in Victoria. So um, they only have 40, uh, 50, what did I say, 51 species of, of plant are endemic. And that means that they don't grow anywhere else in the world except this tiny little speck of land in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And the most iconic of those, of course, is the uh, Norfolk Island pine, Aracaria uh, heterophila. heterophylla which is the reason that the island was settled by the British in the 18th century, because Captain Cook drove, exactly, Captain Cook drove past in in, in his ship and saw these lovely straight pine trees and thought, oh, they'll be good for making ship's masts, exactly, and spars. So we can use this as a a place in the Pacific where we can stop and repair our ships and you know continue our dominance of the waves, Britannia rule the waves. And, And isn't that why many
2: maritime... Um, ports across the eastern seaboard of Australia are planted with Norfolk Island pines. Oh, that could be true. Because, um, as, as I understood it, and this might be a bit a bit apocryphal, but it was so they could be seen. So it was easy to see it on, from the, from a ship. You could see these little spires. And also they would have a harbour to, to pull into. How to.
1: interesting. I didn't know that. No. But, I mean, they certainly do have a unique uh, silhouette on the... Yeah. On the you know well, you no at Port Fairy
2: like or Sorrento or in a lot of these sort of um, coastal towns, lawn, they've got them. You know Apollo Bay, they were planted True. back in Manly, uh, Manly. Manly Beach in Sydney. Yeah, that's
1: right. And yeah.
0: Bondi. The early. only thing
1: was that they were completely useless for making ships. Yes, but that, it was they, great that they planted them because they look good. <laughs> well, they're, they're unmistakable on the horizon. Mm. You know that they, the, they've this, got such the silhouette is so strong. But so many of the
0: Araucarias do have very, very particular shape. And Araucaria, everybody, is a Southern Hemisphere pine. They only exist now in the Southern Hemisphere. Most of them are actually on New Caledonia, That's which right. is another speck of the fourteen species mm. in New Caledonia. Mm. Yeah. And we have quite a few here. They stretch from Chile in South America to here. Mm. Um, southern
1: Brazil actually. The piranha pine in southern Brazil. And the monkey puzzle tree in Chile, Chile. as you say. Mm. And then we've also got uh, other members of the family, the Wollemi pine famously in Australia, the Kauri in New Zealand. But um, just getting back to the Norfolk Island pine, so the whole idea of it was that they were going to use these these trees as ship's masts and ship spars, the British in the 18th century. And were they not strong enough? Well, because they have this ring of branches, if you think about the, the shape of the tree, they're like shish kebabs. You know, they've got this ring of branches, seven branches emerging from there. And wherever those branches emerge, there's a knot that goes right through to the centre of the tree. So they're, basically, they're like perforations in a book of stamps. So in a high wind situation, the trees just perforate along these lines. So they were completely useless for that. So then they thought, well, there's another plant on, on, that's native to the island, in, in, indigenous but not endemic, and that's the New Zealand flax. So New Zealand flax also lives on, on Norfolk Island. And they thought, well, they'd seen um, Māori people make these beautiful soft cloths out of out of uh, New Zealand flax. And they thought, oh, OK, well, we can use those to repair the sails. So they thought, OK, we'll get a couple of Māori folks over here. So they ab- abducted a couple of Māori folks to, to show them how to dress the flax. The only problem was they abducted a couple of blokes. And the blokes didn't have a clue how to do it because it was <laughs> traditionally the work of Māori women. So then they thought, all right, well, women know how to sew, so we'll get some women in. So they imported some um, convicts from the UK, some women convicts, because, you know, like, chicks know how to sew, so This is a right? disastrous
2: experiment in patriarchy.
1: <laughs> know, it, really, it literally is. And, of course, the, the poor female convicts that they got were all, you know, prostitutes from inner London. And all they'd done was steal and, a bolt of cloth. Did, yeah, exactly. They didn't have a clue how to dress like. So that idea fell over as well. So, but, but I mean... The, they didn't
0: have the bright idea of actually talking to Maori women.
1: <laughs> no, really no, not. No. No. Much too hard. But, I mean, I, I think what it demonstrates is how important plants are to economics, you know. It, it's kind of easier for us to just ignore plants today, but they were the whole reason this tiny speck of land was colonised in the middle of the Pacific Ocean was because of two plants, and it was a failure. <laughs> <laughs> That's a
0: fabulous story. Were you there on a tour?
1: I was. I was leading a tour for Botanica World Discoveries. And, you know, it was really interesting to see the gardens on the island because being so isolated, it, you know, it's easy for us to forget that if we want to do something in the garden, we can just trot down to our hardware store, our nursery, or we can get our mail order plants from diggers or another mail order nursery. Um, there, they can't do any of that. There are no hardware stores. There are no nurseries. There are no mail-order companies. Anything that comes from the mainland, you know, is scrutinised by quarantine, so they can't get anything They can't from import here. any plants. So they're stuck with what they've got, and they have so to be So they need their own little plant trust. They Exactly. And people pass plants around, you know, in, like country people have always done in, in the past, you, cuttings. Can I have a cutting of that? Can mm. I have a bit of that? Can we've got some bulbs? And this is how they create their gardens. So they have got a very particular flavour. The gardens over there using the same palette of plants over and over again. And their climate, you know, is one of those. It's spring every day of the year. It's kind of 23 degrees Celsius in the day. It's 17 at night every single day of the year. 80% humidity. And so their gardening culture is one of those. It's one where you it's all about controlling plant growth yeah. rather than you know, touching them along and making them grow. It's about slashing stuff What's back. What's the soil like? What's the Well, it's geologically very young. It's only three million mm. years old and it was uh, a volcano. So it's all beautiful basalt loam. Mm-hmm. One end of the island's got some nice limestone made of coral. Um, but basically basalt loam. So it's and it's which um, would be pretty fertile. Some like. of the deepest topsoils in the world, yeah. something like fifty meters
2: deep. So, so they've got climate and soil pushing biomass production, yeah. basically, so I can see why they'd be wildly trying to contain <laughs> <Exactly>. that. <laughs>
1: yeah. That's right. I mean, it, it's interesting when you think about that, that, that Norfolk Island pines will seemingly grow anywhere in the world, because mm. it, with, as long as it's not too cold, because they are from such a benign climate and such mm. rich soils, yeah. and yet they'll grow happily in, you know, Sydney, Port Ferry. Yep. yep. Um, and the other, the other <laughs> really beautiful plant that I saw on the island is um, their local tree fern which is uh, spheropterus excelsa and excelsa means exalted or high and it's the tallest tree fern in the world 20 meters tall yeah wow can you imagine 20 meter tall tree fern so when the british first arrived the island was covered with subtropical rainforest and the canopy of that rainforest was made by norfolk island pines and giant tree ferns so it must have looked prehistoric yeah Yes. Gondwaman. Well what was what was the the
2: local population, the, the indigenous population? There was none. There was So none at all. there's archaeological
1: okay. evidence that Polynesians had been there, I think, in about the fourteenth century from mm-hmm. memory, and not stayed or not survived. Right. Seems unlikely they didn't survive because they survived in every other speck mm-hmm. of, you know, amazing seafaring. So they
2: chose not to settle there then. Is yep. that the assumption? Yeah,
1: it seems yeah. to be. Wow. So when the British arrived there were no no indigenous people living there. Wow. Yep. I didn't realise that. Yep. And then of course the island was, was uh, populated by Fletcher Christian and his um, uh, mutineers from the Bounty with their Tahitian wives and these have given rise to all the family lineages on the island today. So everyone's got Tahitian ancestry and English ancestry and it shows in their faces. They all have names like Christian and Quintal. They're all from the same families. Fascinating place and culturally distinct from Australia. You know, Really they have their own story and it's not the same as ours.
0: Mm.
1: So yeah, a fascinating well, see, place.
0: See, Hawaii's like that. I mean, Hawaii had two mammals on it: mm. a seal and a bat. Mm. And then the Polynesians arrived with pigs and rats, and and then Captain Cook arrived, and he brought with him his bilge water from California, and in that was the bird flu, and so all the birds on Hawaii were wiped out to a certain height, a considerable height. Wow. So, and you go to Hawaii, and it is so absolutely beautiful, but nearly everything you're looking at as <laughs> imported one. is yeah. exotic. Yes, because, because people, not just white people, not just the white fella, but people have changed it just so dramatically.
1: Mm. And it, Some Australian species of weeds on Hawaii, you know, yeah. uh, and, including some of our tree ferns, like Cyathea cooperi. Mm. And, so,
0: yeah. and they have that absolutely fabulous um, deglupta. Eucalyptus deglupta, The rainbow. The eucalyptus. rainbow oh, eucalyptus. Yeah. So beautiful. Which it's we're, not are there's,
2: there's one in the, in the botanic gardens in Melbourne struggling, struggling. away to grow. It, really, it needs to grow in somewhere like Norfolk Island. Uh, <laughs> Tim,
0: Tim was very keen. Well, there were three originally. Yeah, okay. The possums dealt them a blow as well. But, yes, I think it's, it is a... It, I hope, I hope it survives. Hmm. Bec- and they've just put a whole nu- new garden around it, a sensory garden, which is so beautiful and it's so nice to see sensory plants, you know, because in botanic gardens you tend to have a much bigger view and, mm. and, and have, not have those very quite domestic plants. Mm. Tactile little yes. plants that you can interact with. You know, with, geraniums you know. and pelargoniums yeah. and things like that, you know, there's, and there's a lot of those tactile things that, in that garden, which is just beautiful to mm. see. Um.
1: It's interesting. One of the one of the plants that um, uh, the Polynesian folks did take to Norfolk Island was the cordyline um, uh, fruticosa, the tea plant, ti, um, tea plant, which seems to have been more a sort of ritual plant than anything. Um, it, it, it's not immediately Edible. Um, you can, like, in times of famine, eat the eat the roots. But it it was seen to hold the souls of people to the earth, and so it was considered sort of ritually important. So um, when you see uh, Polynesian people doing hula dance, they often have these skirts of green foliage, and it's made of this particular cordyline. So it's interesting that, that, that plant was considered important enough that it was taken around the Pacific along with food crops like kumara, which was originally collected from Peru. So yeah, it's amazing, Hmm. you know, how the Polynesians originated in Taiwan and fanned out across the Pacific and obviously went as far east as South America where they collected, um, kumara and, um, oh, there's another crop. I'm just trying to think what it is. And then, you know, went back in the other direction. No, not Tara. That's from Southeast Asia. But there's something else. It'll come to me. And then went back in the other direction, you know, and took them as far sort of south as New Zealand. It's interesting. One of the places um, that i visited in New Zealand on the South Island is called Mooraki boulders. And there are these big, round, they look like my head, actually. (laughs) These big, round, bald boulders that are just scattered across the beach like a giant scattered them and the story is that these um were the kumara the sweet potatoes from Maui's canoe and so Maui is this kind of demigod um in Polynesian culture and he's the guy who fished up the island of New Zealand of, of of Aotearoa out of the ocean and his um canoe tipped over and um all his um the sweet potatoes fell out across the beach. It's quite interesting, though, because that is about the southernmost point at which Kumara will grow in New Zealand because further south of that it's too cold. So that was the explanation of Māori people as to why Kumara would never grow further south because that's where, you know, Maori's tipped out. So just so interesting and how plants tell us stories about patterns of human, you know, trade and exchange mm. and movement and, yeah.
0: And when you think of the things um, that were stolen colonially... Tea stolen from China.
1: In exchange for opium. Or exchange. Well, (laughs) stolen. (laughs) You you got, you know, addicted. Well, that's right. So, tea was stolen from China, taken to To India India by the British. And Ceylon.
0: Yeah, that's right. Sugar. Um, Sugar and coffee was Mm -hmm. stolen from Yemen. It was stolen Mm. quite early on.
1: Cloves were grown on the island of Zanzibar and it was punishable by death to take any propagation material off the island because, you know, plants have been valuable to humans for a long time. Yes, yes. Our lives are inextricably
2: linked to plants. I mean, even the the food we eat today has all these lineages. The oxygen
1: we breathe.
0: But when you think about chilli, it is impossible to think of Indian food or Southeast Mm. Asian food without chilli, and yet chilli comes from South America.
1: Mm.
0: You know, I... it's just so much part of the culture of the rest of, the, of parts of the rest of the world now. Absolutely. But that's not where it comes from. Tomatoes in
1: Italian food. And how on no. earth can Mexico? you think about
0: Ireland without potatoes? Yeah. And yet the potato comes from South America. Yeah, that's right. And it's about the it was about British colonization of Ireland that the potato became the thing that the poor or, people ate
1: exactly. I mean, potato was essentially food for for livestock in Europe. You mm. know, the um, Europeans wouldn't eat it for the first couple of hundred years after it was introduced into Europe because it was it, it, they thought it was morally reprehensible so <laughs> you know if it didn't kill you well, it would it would give you unwanted desires and so <laughs> it was fed to livestock and it was only in the 1770s in France when there were food shortages that the peasants had to give this stock feed a try and they found that actually potatoes are okay they're pretty yummy and so it became poor people food because the rich only ate white bread and they wouldn't you know Eat stock food like the peasants.
0: But um, when I was, I lived in Hackney in London, and I was the white person that would queue up for pumpkin at the market. Oh yes, it was yeah. the Caribbeans and me yep. that would queue up for pumpkins because the, Amer- uh, the Est- Brits wouldn't eat pumpkins. Well, I think
2: I think the, um, the Americans are much the same. I mean, they they don't make eat that it horrible like, pie. Well, they make a pumpkin pie and it's about it. Whereas. That that was a revelation to me, I guess, in my teenage years when I discovered that, because pumpkin is part of Australian cuisine. Absolutely. We've been we've been leaders in roasting the, it. Yeah, oh. yeah, as part of a, a roast, a part of a, a, Delicious. a staple. Yeah, oh. and there are actually a number of Australian um, Australian uh, cultivars or selections of pumpkins that have gone back to the US as cultivated food stocks, mm. not just for
1: pigs and lambs. Mm. They're actually proper food. Friends of mine were travelling a few years ago in, um, in Romania, and um, they're vegetarians. Romania's not known for its vegetarian cuisine. <laughs> and they saw a, a farmer um, with a horse-drawn um, you know, uh, buggy thing, and it was stacked up with potatoes. So they flag- uh, Not potatoes, pumpkins, rather. So they flagged him down and begged him for a, pota- uh, a pumpkin, and he said, what do you want to do with the, the pumpkin? And they said, we, we're going to make pot- pumpkin soup and eat it. And the guy said, what for you want to eat pig for? <laughs> you know, and that really is the attitude of most people around the world. I so, know. Yeah.
0: And pu- I love a pumpkin. And it's worth
1: saying that, that some pumpkin varieties are better as stock feed yeah. than as human feed. I mean, Turk's Turban, a mm. beautiful heirloom uh, from the 1870s in France. It's a magnificent mm. looking thing, mm. but it's pretty bland and watery yeah. and blah. Super decorative. Super decorative, yeah. <laughs> but I'm leaving it there. <laughs>
0: exactly. I make orange soup. I, I have pumpkin, sweet potato, carrots and red lentils. Oh gosh. Oh, nice. And that, bit that's been in my family.
2: Tie tie red curry paste in there to give it a well, spice. Well, it depends. <laughs> I mean that Turmeric.
0: is that is the basis. And, and it, it varies according to who it goes to. Like, it might have coriander and chilli, and, yep. or if it's for somebody who's sick, like I've just made a batch for my daughter because she's not well, it doesn't, she's not eating any garlic or onion, so I'll have to, I've never left garlic and onion out before, <laughs> but I've left it out this time. But it's those four. It's the orange things. Put all the orange things together.
1: Beta-carotene mm. soup.
0: Yeah, orange Where soup. Where are all our
1: callers this morning, Virginia? I don't know.
0: I'm Virginia Hayward. This is the 3CR Garden Show. You're listening to me, Tim Sampson, Simon Ricard. If you wish to ring us, ring us on 94190155, or send us a text on 809 855. I think we're so interesting, <laughs> yeah. that they haven't wanted to ring us. Perhaps
1: they're all at dawn so- services or something like that. Yeah.
0: I doubt it because the numbers are so low. The numbers have been kept down on well, oh. my brother and sister, and all the poor things are um, stuck in Perth. Ah, uh, yes. Not a place you'd want to be just at the moment. But nevertheless.
1: Would you like to talk in, about any of the plants I brought in with me today, Virginia? I think that
0: sounds like an excellent idea.
1: Great. Um, what would you like to start with? Look, I, I brought in some pears to start with, actually. Um, because the, the, all my pears are ripe at the moment in the in the garden. April's the month my my pears ripen, and, and um, I brought in some heirloom varieties of pear here, um, which in fact all all varieties of pear, commercially grown are heirloom varieties, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just brought some in to 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 show you. Um, this one is is probably the Rolls Royce um, of pears. This is called Doyenne du Comice. It's an old French variety, and you can see it's a big blocky, ugly thing. Um, but when it's ripe, it uh, um, has the most beautiful uh, sort of rosewater perfume, very delicately flavoured and soft, melting, juice, juicy flesh. Now, I've, I've picked this off the tree because it's ready to come off the tree, but it's not ripe yet. You, I mean, you can eat it, but it's, it's like a brick bat. It's I like them brain. hard. You like love, them hard?
0: I love a hard pear. Mm.
1: Fine. Well, I, I like them when they're fully ripe and they, they don't fully ripen until they're left indoors for a week or 10 mm. days. And at that point, they, they sort of go a little bit yellow. The stem might shrivel a little bit and that's when you know they're ready to go and they develop their perfume as well. And that's really when they're at their best, I, I think. It's, it's, so pears are a fruit that don't ripen on the tree. They need to be ripened indoors Um, and harvest, knowing when to harvest All them. All pears. Yes, all pears. Um, Which ha- is why right, it's often a challenge to
2: get the pear from the supermarket, because they've been ro- they've been harvested some time earlier, mm. been sitting around, and they're probably at almost at peak or under peak, and they're really hard That's to right. pick. If you've got them off your own tree, you can get them... It is a timing right, issue. At the right time, and there is nothing like, nothing compares to eating a pear, yep. grown off your home tree, ripened at home to something you get from the supermarket. It's really true. It takes the gamble out of it. Exactly.
1: And it is, a, it is a gamble knowing exactly when to harvest them. But luckily, I've talked about the perforations in the, the stem of a Norfolk Island pine before, but, but pears also have a, a row of cells at the top of their little stem, the little stem that attaches to the tree that does the same job. And when the, all the sugars are fully developed in the pear, then those cells dry out, like perforations in a book of stamps, and they just snap off in mm. the most... It, it's very satisfying, actually, it's isn't like it? Click. Just snapping off. Yeah, <laughs> they, they literally go click. So then these pears I, I um, will store in my fridge, and they'll actually store until October. So pears store really well, and then I... In I, the fridge. Yep, in the fridge. I get a couple out every, you know, every couple of days. But if
2: you want them to ripen, I ripen at room them, temperature. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So every couple of days I get a few out, mm. leave them there on the kitchen counter for a week, and then they're ready to go. Mm till October, which is flowering time for next year's crop.
0: We have our first call. We have Jill from the Herb Society. Hello, Jill.
3: And two gentlemen.
1: Good morning, Jill.
3: Yes, I'm fine. Well, I've been making my PowerPoint for the Herb Society's May the 6th meeting, Thursday, 7.15, 7.30 p.m., and it's on plants of the first fleet.
1: Very oh, topical.
3: No, yeah. <laughs> yes, very exciting. And uh, I've seen a dis- I have seen did a s- display in 2015 on the same topic, but I was so excited because I have one of the plants that went from Brazil in the garden, and I didn't even know what its name was, and it's Jarlap.
1: What's that I don't know what that is
3: well it's it's for an emetic
1: or oh, uh, for,
3: for, for people who uh you know have uh a uh, gastric problems then it's got a beautiful magenta flower, and suddenly enough magenta is my favorite color so i brought, i just put magenta flowers uh, into my garden there we are
1: what what's I've it called again Jill Jarlap. J-A-L-A-P. Ah, okay. Jalapa Mirabilis. Okay. A beautiful plant. Um, Something growing at Heronswood Garden too, actually. And, you know, it's got those big blocky bulbs under the ground. And I think is four o'clock one of the common names? Yes, I
3: think so. Because the flowers yes. open, you know. But, but, but this, no, the, the four o'clock has various coloured flowers is the one I have has only magenta flowers.
1: Mm, like the old wild variety. You That's can get white white ones see. now as well.
3: Yes. Well, I'm I'm very excited because I always take some examples. You know, it's easy to take a lemon tree, and a ginkgo, and um, yes, a few others that I've got. And uh, but uh, to have that plant and in flower, you know. It, it's a summer flower, but it's, it's still hanging on facing north. Mm. And,
0: and where does um, it come from, Jill?
3: It comes from Rio de Janeiro. Right. People just don't know that the First Fleet called into Tenerife, stayed stayed for months in Brazil, and then went to Cape Town, you know, to capture the uh, Westerlies, uh, to go... And, and people sort of think that, you know, they, they went to the different power,
4: mm.
1: And, of course, Rio is where they first picked up oranges to bring to the Australian colony too, isn't it?
3: Well, yes, uh, oranges and lemons, the citrus. And then, of course, in Cape Town, they took up some of the crop plants in case the ones they had, uh, you know, had been spoiled on the long journey. And, um, yes, yeah, so there's all sorts of plants and... Uh, uh, even even oak trees are taken from south, uh, from Cape Town, uh, oak trees and myrtles, but it's not specific as to which myrtles it would, mm. which myrtles. But I'm don't, sure it's not a crepe myrtle. I'm sure it's one of the species myrtles. You know, myrtle berries. These? Myrtle berry, yes. So, and it's been it's been hard to find actually. The derivation, the, uh, you know, the early plant names, you know, because I always try to give the botanic names. Oh, yes, you know, on the web, no, they don't like botanic anymore. It's got to be scientific. Mm. Poor thing.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, common names are as good as useless, really, because w- what does myrtle mean, you know? It could be so many That's different right. kinds of plant, couldn't it?
3: That's right. Well, you think of the crepe myrtle. You know, I've got three crepe myrtles and I've got a lemon myrtle. Well, none of those are uh,
2: applicable to this situation. And none of them are related
3: to
1: each other in any way. No, No, that's right. It's like the lime tree, isn't it? To us, it means a citrus tree. You put in your gin and tonic, and to a British person, it means a deciduous street tree, a lime tree. That's right. So that's, I guess... Up up
3: at at, um, Herney Creek, there's a fantastic Chilia cordata, the lime Mm -hmm. tree, and it's surrounded by one of those gardens seats, you know, the iron garden Mm seats, that are well well away from the trunk. They're hoping the trunk will grow, you know, far bigger in its girth. And it's dedicated to a former uh, member of the committee at Ferdy Creek Garden Club for 21 years, and his name is Henry Lyme. No way.
1: (laughs) What are the chances? (laughs) Someone thought that through, surely.
3: Well, they've (laughs) chosen the tree to match the name, of course. You no, know, if his name had been Henry Eucalyptus, I'm sure they'd have a Eucalyptus. <laughs> it would have been the gum.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think he'd more likely be called Henry Gum than Henry Eucalyptus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, Jill, your next Herb Society is on Thursday.
3: Uh, Thursday, May the 6th, not the coming Thursday. Right. But, I, but I'm going in early so people can prepare uh, to, to the arrangements, you know, because, um, well... If you just tell them a couple of days before, they may already have lined up something. For no, that I think stuff. people
0: like things in their diary. I mean, I want to talk about what's coming up in October because I think people need things in their diary. So you're quite right, Jill. So in a fortnight, the next Herb Society, and it's at Burnley? Burnley, room 10, go up the
3: steel ramp, and the door is open magically. Yes. <laughs> Magic Herb. And- <laughs> And uh, the other thing is that I want to tell you about, we had to have a tree out, a bur oak, which I wept as it was taken out. Oh no, next door's paving was rising, poor thing. And uh, uh, yes, I'll go to SUNY. Uh, anyway, it came out, and then I heard this fantastic lecture that the most important compost is that from wood. Because the micro, the micro um, you know, the fungi the uh, yes, live on it. And I've got the most fantastic plants on that pile of sawdust that I insisted they keep. They, yes, I don't want you to take any of my sawdust. Good on you. you. And I've got fantastic tomato plants, the best I've ever had, that grew up just out of the spoil <laughs> and they've got tomatoes on that are bigger than eggs, green ones. Oh, that's ones. great.
1: It's like corn-fed chicken or something, only it's oak-fed tomatoes.
3: That's right. <laughs> and I'm going to now, I've got, a, you know, those stands that you put around the tomatoes when they grow up so they don't flop, and I'm going to put one of those over this afternoon and then have a nice little hothouse over my green tomatoes. <laughs> see if they ripen
0: up. Well, I, I do all my paths in my garden out of out of sawdust and it's a fantastic place for propagation. <laughs> I get yeah. all sorts of wonderful things growing up in my paths which makes me very happy.
3: When I heard the lecture the uh, gentleman was saying that he imports, oh I think it might have been Craig.
0: Oh, it might Craig have been Craig, said, it sounds like yeah. a Craig thing. Yes, that
3: he imports, uh, you know, great mounds of sawdust every year, uh, you know, from people cutting down trees uh, to make his garden grow. That's his compost. Yes, it was cray. There you go. I think think there's
2: some difference between sort of heavy sawdust, like old wood and new wood. Like if you can get hold of, it's it's not necessarily something you can specify, but um, tree branches that are fairly young in growth, uh, actually develop a, a softer form of of, saw, of um, sawdust um, which will actually be which will rot down quicker and have a bit more vigour the other thing you've got to remember with sawdust is that it's heavy heavy carbon so without a bit of nitrogen or some manure or, some, or a green manure or something through it it's, it, it can be quite inert um, but it is a great source of biomass if you're building material but you have to nurture it a bit, I'm not, I'm not sure what Craig was, was talking about in his presentation but I imagine there would have been an element of of giving it a bit of um, a bit of life to, to, to compost it.
3: Yes, oh, I think definitely. The, I think he was adding blood and bone, and, mm. you know, for the, the nitrogen, that sort of. Uh, anyway, I've also got a, a climbing, native climber, you know, that beautiful trumpet flower, the pink one, uh, that was the Pandora, there. Pandoria
1: pandorana? That's, yes.
3: That's right. And it's going like mad. And I put one piece of salvia leucansa, you know, the purple velvet flower, Mm -hmm. uh, into that ground at the start of winter. And that's a huge, you know, it's huge now. It's amazing. (laughs) And looking amazing right
2: now, I would have thought.
3: Yes, everything's
0: amazing. Jill, I'll just tell everybody the the Craig we're talking about is, is Craig from Gentiana Nursery in Olinda, and he recently spoke to the Herb Society. So that's the Herb Society in two weeks. If people are interested in going, and it's at Burnley, I presume you have a website, Jill.
3: Uh, yes, we do. Herb, herb Society Vic. dot org.
0: Thanks very much, Jill.
3: Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye have bye. Bye.
0: And that we also have some texts coming in. One saying. Yes, Virginia, you're right. You, the three of you are very interesting, so that was nice. <laughs> oh, thank <laughs> no, it's you. Nice to <laughs> validation. Thank you. But my, I have had a pear tree in for seven years, and it still hasn't fruited. Mm-hmm. So, do we have any thoughts?
1: Well, I have several thoughts. Well, you,
2: would you like to go to? Well, my first question is: is what is it like? Is what variety is it? Um,
1: is it on its own? Does it have a friend? Yeah, and I
2: think pollination is most likely the
1: answer to that. Mm. Um, Could also be age. You know, there's an old saying, pears for your heirs, because Mm. pear trees can take a very long time to start fruiting, uh, depending on what kind of rootstock you grow them on. So um, my pears are grown on a quince A rootstock, which is uh, a dwarfing rootstock. So the ultimate size of the tree is only about three and a half metres instead of ten metres. Pear trees can get very big on their own roots.
2: Mm. And the quince... Um, forces precocious flowering exactly. or earlier flowering too, which which goes to that same point. I mean, it could be because
0: Janine is Janine. Janine is in Frankston, so yeah.
2: So I think I, I agree with Simon that it could be it's variety, it could be age, uh, it could also be pruning too. I mean, it, uh, people have a tendency to prune um, their trees pretty hard, and perhaps they don't understand where the fruiting wood uh, appears on a on a tree. Um, apples and pears typically fruit on permanent fruiting spurs and if you're pruning them every winter which is which is kind of a tradition but perhaps not correct um you're pruning off the fruiting wood and you're forcing um growing wood which is not going to produce the spurs and so the antidote to that which i'm sure Simon does because i've seen his garden is to do summer pruning uh, and establish a framework yep. of I'll pass to you exactly, exactly right. You
1: so, your... so, pruning is something that you should do for your plant's benefit rather than your own. Um, my dad used to do every year exactly what Tim described. He'd he'd prune, for, you know, for himself, and he cut off anything that he thought looked messy. And all the messy bits of the tree with mm. the fruiting. they yeah, the fruiting Spurs, yeah. <laughs> all the those messy bits, annoying of fruit. little twenty centimetre long little twiggy things, and that, that that's where your fruit are. But that would always say, well, they're a bloody mess. I'm going to take them off, and the tree would, and then he'd say, this bloody tree never fruits. So it could your be pruning old dad. <laughs> Poor old dad So um, exactly as Tim described um, Summer pruning is an important technique with, with, um, Especially with if you're growing your fruit tree in a restricted form Like an espalier or a fan like I do And summer pruning tends to encourage weak fruiting growth At the expense of strong vegetative growth which is what is produced when you prune in winter. So it could be a combination of factors with your pear tree. It could be exactly, as Tim said, pruning. It could be loneliness. It might need a pollinator. Most varieties of pears do. Ah. There are a couple which are partially self-fertile, Williams and Conference, but most pears will need a a pollination partner. So if you don't have another variety of pear in your yard or your neighbours don't have one in their yard, then it might be worth looking into Mm. a second tree. And picking
2: a tree that, and the, the pollination partners, pollination partnership mm. is about flower timing. So it's matching, you know, the pollinating, pollinating friend must be flowering to donate pollen at the same time. So
0: don't just go and get any old pair. No, major, you can you get look one up. That is yeah, you can, so once,
2: once you know which one you've got, so it is important to know which one you've got. And of um, course,
0: Janine doesn't say whether her plant is flowering, which is an important question. Well, that's question. A, yeah, true. I guess it's mm. a
2: question we overlook straight away. Yeah. Did it ever flower? In, in fact, if we, if if we go back to that pruning question, That's when you would see no flower. So if you're Mm. not, if you're looking at your tree because you've been hacking it like Simon's dad, and it doesn't ever produce any flower in spring, then of course you're not going to get any fruit. So Mm.
0: look at the pruning, and also coming into spring, throw your banana peel around your tree to make sure that to help it with its flowering. That can't hurt.
1: I'd probably go straight to sulphate of (laughs) (laughs) potash. You want to slip over? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's right. So, so yes, potassium, which is, you know, something that's in banana peel, but also in sulphate of potash, is um, responsible for flowering and, and fruit set. So that, but that you would probably be... want to put that on... Autumn. S- and yeah, now,
2: mm-hmm. to get it in the ground, because like, mm. the, the tree is going to... I mean, it's, it's going to be dormant, clearly, running mm. into its flowering period. So mm. the last bit of, of storage is happening Exactly. basically earlier than now, actually, because mm. the, the tree is not drawing much into it at the moment. So you probably want to do that in sort of February.
1: Yep.
0: Yes, I think, I think bananas are often forgotten. Banana skins thrown into the waste is just really silly. Put them in the well, garden. Well, any, any well,
2: vegetable organic scraps, matter, yeah, any yeah. organic matter at all. Quite, yeah. yes. In fact, I'm quite ardent about this. I don't have a green bin at my place. It all goes and... Yeah. <laughs> I, put, I, I chip it all. I, I, make, I make my own compost. I'm
0: afraid I also have a fire. I fire, I chip... But, oh, if you, you'
2: with your fire, all you've got to do is get a bathtub and and you can create biochar pretty easily by so you, the bio, biochar the whole concept of biochar seems quite um, technical and scientific. My uncle's done quite a bit of work on biochar he's um, in central Victoria and he used to have he built this enormous kiln at one point and was temperature checking it and all. He's got to the point now where all he does is he sorts all these branches to the same size and diameter. Um, puts them in a bathtub and burns them together so that the point of that is that they all burn at the same rate get it to the point where um, all basically the constituent pieces are starting to disintegrate and it's turning into the sort of same uh, the, the coals are still there but you can't recognise the constituent pieces anymore quench that down with a hose so that you stop it going beyond that point and the resulting material in the bathtub is excellent biochar so okay. if you're going to burn do that rather than just I a a big hole.
0: I use the um, coals out of my fire for biochar. Yeah, and mix it up with.
2: The, I think that the critical point is if you let the combustion go too far, you lose the value. So the point of this controlled burn is you get it to a point where it's where it's basically deconstituted and it's a fine grade of, of ashes. Quench it at that point because if you let it go any further, it'll go to white. And once it's gone to white, white it's, it's, it's no finished. good. No, <gasps>
0: I, well, I use the things that. At, that come out at the end of the fire, you know, because I've gone to bed. And so yeah. I'll, I'll get those So they've pieces. probably quenched themselves. Yeah. Yes. And, yeah, then, we, yeah. and then I put them in a bag and walk on them to get yep. them mushed up. Yep. And then I put in seaweed mix, yep. some compost out of the out of the um, compost bin. Yep. Mix it all up and put and it get around. A little concoction. Yeah. yeah. And I put it around anything I'm planting. Yeah. I find it. I do think it works rather well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have another question. Yesterday I went to Melton Botanic Gardens. This is from Jenny. Yesterday I went to Melton Botanic Gardens and saw the most beautiful Brunsvigia Mm-hmm. Then I saw Simon posting a photo of one. I'd like to know a little more about the plant and where I can get one.
1: Oh, fantastic. So Brunsvigia josephinae is a bulb from South Africa. Um, it's a hu- yes, it's a huge bulb, bulb, about the size yeah. of a soccer, bulb, uh, soccer ball. Uh, soccer ball and um, with eight great big grey uh, paddle shaped leaves in winter, but it goes to sleep in the t- summer. So it's just like the plants we were talking mm-hmm. about at the beginning of uh, our discussion, you know, things which go to sleep in the summer and wake up and do their growing in winter. Before it, well, The first thing it does when it wakes up before it goes into its growth season is to produce a huge flower stalk. So this flower stalk is, um, uh, has, uh, uh, it's like, looks like a chandelier. It's uh, about 60 centimetres across or more, and it has uh, 20 flowers at the ends of long stems in a, in a big spherical shape. So it looks like a a light fitting and in it's South cool. Africa they call it candelar which means which chandelier flower.
2: I often think it looks like a a, a firework exploding yeah you know because
1: it's got like the Centralist. central piece
2: and then bang <laughs> yeah yeah exactly, or a dandelion head,
1: yeah. yeah, yeah, and what that head is actually for is uh, it, it, each one of those long stems is uh, tipped in a red flower and there for sunbirds to pollinate so the long stem provides a perch for the sunbird or in my case um, eastern spinebills and New Holland honey eaters to stand on and they drink the nectar from the red flower and that produces seeds and then when those seeds ripen the whole big chandelier arrangement um, dries out, breaks off and rolls across the landscape like a tumbleweed and it deposits seeds as it rolls across the landscape like a tumbleweed um, clever plants Very clever plant mm. and, and are
0: the seeds on your plant viable?
1: Um, they were last year And I, I, I got one seedling Several germinated but So yeah, quite low viability So it's never going to be a weed And if you do sow one of those seeds It won't flower for about 10 or 12 years Mine took 13 years to flower From, from seedling. a seedling Yeah. yeah from, okay. Well, 10 years from a 3-year-old seedling okay. to flower So that's the first thing you need to know You need to be patient and then um, what you need to do is well track down someone who sells them, and I know Tonkin's bulbs sell them in uh, in uh, Calorama or Sylvan.
0: She comes in on the to the program now. Jane. Oh, really, Jane comes in. Yes,
1: fantastic. I bought my very first bulbs from her dad when I was sixteen. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, who and else Tonkin, sells it?
0: Tonkin bulbs? If you look them up, it's a it's a mail order, so that yep. would be a good that's place right. to get them.
1: Yep, absolutely. Um, I've seen them at Collectors Corner down in um, Springvale, Keysborough, that sort of area, uh, Brayside, I think it is now. Um, mm-hmm. Garden so World. So they are around. World. So my advice is go to Google and have a look. Yeah. And the you know the bigger your bulb, if you want to buy a big bulb that's taking less time to flower, you're going to be paying big money, like a hundred bucks mm-hmm. for a mature
0: bulb. And I imagine you'd get them at Roraima.
1: Maybe yes, you could try Ruraima Nursery down in Lara. At Lara, Lara Philippe. yes. Yeah, you could try there. There's not much so you can't get from him actually. It's if no, you ask. it's true.
0: <laughs> and if you do go there, he has a wonderful garden to walk through. Oh, so it's give fantastic. yourself enough time.
2: Prehistoric yeah. looking, yeah. absolutely crazy. Semi-industrial. Yeah, it's, it's a great. brilliant. Garden. Yeah, but that's a little gem that's kind of hidden away that people don't know about on the yes. on the Geelong Road. Absolutely. If you're a gardener, any interest in gardening or crazy landscape. Pop in and see Roy Roy,
0: Roy Rama. It's a wonderful garden, and again, I'm sure you could find that on a website. I'm sure, yeah. Now, let's spell it R-O-R-A-I-M-A,
1: which is the name of a tapuí in Venezuela. It's one of these flat table mountains that rises up above the The cloud forest. Exactly.
0: So that is definitely a garden that's worth looking at. Absolutely.
2: And he's got a great little nursery, so yeah, you might find... A really good nursery too, succulents and...
0: I suspect you would find Mm. one there, because he he does have those sort of things that...
2: Interesting story you mentioned, just that you're talking about how it was the sunbirds in Mm -hmm. South Africa that would pollinate, and here we've got our native Mm -hmm. honey eaters. There's a really strong correlation between, and we talked earlier about South African flowers or or plants that have a similar life cycle to our Australian native plants, Mm -hmm. Um, clearly we have to be aware of some of their weedy potential because they've donated a couple of weeds to our, our landscape. Or bone seed. And um, Aggies,
1: I'm going to have to fact-check you there. Aggies are not weeds anywhere. I can talk more about that if you like. But do oh, go on, yes. Tim. Curious this on is, this that? is my bet noire, so <laughs> it's a very strongly held misbelief. Mis- well, do, do p- go on, Tim. But, but
2: it, 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 I guess it, it highlights the same point, is that we bring, and I, and I had this experience living at the Garden of St Earth, living and gardening at the Garden of St Earth in the middle of the Wombat State Forest, in the wintertime with Nephophias and a bunch of other um uh, bell shaped flowers that came phygelius. from South Africa, Clagyus, all sorts of things, we would have this enormous influx of, of nectar eating birds. Salvias. Which, which far more than you would have in the in the forest right next mm. door. Mm. So there's like we can kind of break this nexus between it has to be natives and it has to be um, you know, endemic to actually support our bird life.
0: What mm. you have to do is try and make sure you've got the right sort of flower for the whole year. Yeah. For both the your birds around. and your bees. Yep, yeah.
2: and, you, and your own eye as well. well mm, yeah. Quite. But, true.
0: but, you know, my salvias are such... When I moved to my place, I had no small birds mm. at all. And now I have got so many... Yeah. Mm. It's just so many, and it's absolutely wonderful, and they're there right through the winter because I provide flowers for them right mm. through the winter.
1: Yeah, exactly. But and anyway, I back to Agapanthus. Well, <laughs> well, no, I mean it, it's true. There's this kind of false dichotomy between native plants and um, exotic plants, which has ceased to be any kind of horticultural discussion in Australia. It's become kind of a moral issue, mm. you know, where you're you're a morally worthy person if you plant natives, and morally reprehensible if you plant exotics. And plants just don't read. Sorry, b- animals don't read a plant's passport, they just see a resource as Tim said, so Tim and I were at the Garden of Earth together at the same time and as Tim said, you know, the, the Garden of Earth is a tiny little excision in the middle of the Wombat State Forest and the animals did not all just stop at the fence and look over and think, well I don't recognise anything there. Quite the we opposite. Had, yeah, exactly <laughs> the garden was always full of wallabies and wombats, mm-hmm. you had wombats living under your house, yes. um, there were you know, antichinus digging little tunnels in the herbaceous border oh, and and well, divine if were you amazing.
2: weren't trying to get a herbaceous border to survive. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Every year we cut it back and there were all these tunnels just yeah. through all the grasses. But um, the point is that, that animals don't check a plant's passport. And getting back to agapanthus, you know, there is this commonly held, mishe- held misbelief that, you know, every time I say the word agapanthus, people say it's a noxious weed. Well, settle down, folks. It's not It's noxious. not. It's not. No. And the, if you look at the, the um, official weed database on the Environment Australia website, there are no species, there are nine species of agapanthus, and none is listed as a declared weed in any jurisdiction in Australia.
0: Well, I don't know why they're not in the Yarra Valley, because they certainly do spread outside the garden.
1: Sure, but there are degrees of weediness, and so it's not True. a declared weed in it. So it might be locally it's not, annoying. not as bad as the oxalis. It might be locally annoying here and there, but it's not um, sufficiently weedy in any jurisdiction to be a declared weed. By contrast, there are some Australian native plants that are. So Ptospora undulatum, the native Daphne, is a declared weed in its own home state of New South Wales. The Cootamundra wattle is a declared weed in the ACT, 140 uh, kilometres from its native range in Cootamundra. So... You know, I've got both. in Provenance, provenance mm. doesn't necessarily mean a plant's going to be a weed or well, not. Well, people
0: tell me I should plant more native, and I say, oh, yes, I'm thinking of getting some from New Zea- more New Zealand plants. And, that's not native, I say, but it's closer than Perth. Closer broome. than Perth. <laughs> yep,
1: absolutely, and it's only separated by a sea of water instead of a sea of sand. Mm.
0: Mm. So, and the climate is more similar to mine than
1: exactly. And broome. that's, I guess, how I choose the plants in my garden from similar climates in other parts of the world. I do
0: think we have a responsibility to be very careful about. Absolutely. Spread.
1: Yes, oh absolutely And I mean, Uh, uh, plants get a trial in my garden And if they show any signs of being frisky They are on the burn pile straight away Mm -hmm. So you know, last year I grew a a new Beautiful new anthriscus with golden foliage I thought, oh this is going to be really nice Mm. And I let it self-seed Because it's quite a short-lived perennial So Mm. I let them self-seed And it was absolutely rampant And it spread quite a long distance from the parent plant In one growing season I thought, right, you are out, Out. you are gone Mm -hmm. So I think it, it, you know, uh, but it that doesn't mean to say it's going to do the same thing in Melbourne, you know, as compared with where I live. Absolutely. So I, I think it, you're right. Gardeners need to take responsibility for this themselves individually.
0: Yes. And I mean, I go around and take all my eggy heads off. I mean, mm. I can't. He'd so all the people, digging them all up. Well, there are also igle-
2: aggies and aggies too. There, yes. are, there well, are there are the sort of aggies, aggies, aggies you are talking about. There's not, hmm. and there's also herbaceous ones that die back each each winter, and they're not. You see, find a seedling of those, and you're very lucky. Well, hmm. I'm lucky. Like, well, no, very lucky because well,
1: they, they don't. They're essentially sterile. Yes. I've so got
0: a very beautiful pampas in my garden, uh-huh. and it's sterile. Right. I wouldn't think of planting.
1: So most of the Aggies I grow are sterile hybrids. Mm. They're they're mules, like just like the mule, a hybrid of a Mm. horse and a donkey can't reproduce. It's the same with the kind of Aggies I grow. So as Tim says, there are Aggies and Aggies, and I think it behoves people to understand what they are rather than just having a knee-jerk reaction. Mm. I think there's also, for
2: me, there's there's an aesthetic too around. You know, a driveway line with massive agapanthus swathes doesn't appeal to my aesthetic either. Whereas, sort of little pops of colour of, of Agapanthus inapatus or something like that, there it's, 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 but I'm being a bit pejorative, I suppose, there. But the colour. It's kind of a, kind of a go to. They've been a go to for so long. But for, it's
0: because they flower when, in, in, the, February. in that yeah, height But there of are heat.
2: so many other plants that will do that, and I guess that's where we expand our range of thinking about plants that will perform at that time of the yeah, year. Yeah, then yeah. we don't have to be locked into Agapanthus. But, but
0: the aggie lasts until it melts, which is about 38. Degrees, mm. whereas quite a lot of other things start to fall over, not mm. melt. I mean, the aggie actually does melt, which is revolting. Mm. But <laughs> other things tend to fall over at 35 mm. degrees if, yeah. it, if it's continual. So, th- so I there, think there that is p- one of the things about the aggie, that it holds up white and blue mm. and cool-looking in, in the middle of
2: February. The and that is a time when we want cool-looking plants. Mm. I, you know, and I talked before about that sort of the lush, succulent look. That's what we're trying to give alternatives to. And it could I don't be foliage colour or flower colour, but there are other sweets. Other I don't plants
0: want out there. red and I don't want yellow in my yeah. garden in mm, February.
2: Very mm. few people do, actually. I, in, a, in a previous life or a life, I was working for a company called Plants Management Australia where we were doing marketing of plants for the mass market. And one of the, the, one of the only ever flops in that, in that space was, a, was um, it, red rubecchias, actually. Mm. Um, bright yellow and red flowered rubecchias which were huge in Europe, huge in the UK, brought them to Australia on the same thinking, and they flopped badly. Mm. I think that hot colour palette mm. is, has to be quite restrained in our, in our climate. Yeah, in our it's
1: interesting. I mean, I use a lot of that palette in, in my own garden uh, in, in, in the summer, but I cool it down with lots of apple greens mm. and colours that can kind of counteract that, that hot feeling. Mm. But I, I think it takes some sophistication.
0: This is the 3CR Garden Show. I'm Virginia Hayward, and you're listening to me, Tim Sampson, and Simon Rickard. We have a, an email address, 3 at gmail.com, or you can ring in on nine four one nine oh one double five. We still haven't talked about your plant, Simon.
1: No. Well, I've got another pair there, but that's probably just you know, more of the same. But the other plants I've brought in are um, South African plants, and these are Crassulas, and Crassulas are a group of succulent plants that, that they have a very interesting uh, metabolism, a little knack in their metabolism, whereby they can do some of their photosynthesis at night, and that instead of all during the daytime. Because when they photosynthesize, when plants do photosynthesis during the day, they have to open the pores in their leaves and they lose moisture. So these little guys uh, are able to do half that thing at night. And the, the group of crassulas I brought in uh, are actually what we call stacking crassulas.
0: I have to say, I think that is gorgeous. They're cute, aren't
1: they? They look like they're made of Lego. Little yes. Lego plants. And I grow these, Grey you can Lego. see they're in tiny little pots, and I grow these on my windowsill in my lounge room in winter, and in summer they go out the back in the, in the sun. So, um, I kill most plants in pots because I, I hate watering pots. Watering's drudgery. So anything in a pot in my place either gets murdered or it survives, and these my, little guys. My are,
0: daughter refers to my plants in pots as death row. Mum, do you want me to water <laughs> death row?
1: <laughs> exactly. So I found that these little stacking crassulas do really well for me in pots. And, um, uh, grow indoors in the winter. What, what sort of media have you got them? Oh, good question. So they, they're adapted, they live in South Africa in the quartz fields where they're in basically growing in gravel. And they need a very, very open potting mix. So I get, um, cactus mix and then I mix that with 50% perlite. And I also mulch them on top with a little, uh, bit of, uh, blue metal gravel just to keep moisture away from the, the collar of the plant. And some of them have very beautiful flowers. You can see some of them are in bud right now. Mm. But this little one I'm holding now, this is called Crassula morgan's beauty. And this has got the most beautiful right little uh, pink pom-poms when it flowers. It's so cute. Yeah, about the size of a 20 cent piece.
0: There are lots of Crassulas in the botanic gardens, at the highest point of the botanic gardens, very which true. is a good place for people to have a look.
1: Absolutely. And also in the new, the new cactus and, and succulent in the new garden, c- yes, you'll see indeed. these small varieties. And you can see some in the Digger's Dry Garden too, a Crassula falcata, which yeah. is bright red when it flowers in February um, as well. So I can highly recommend these as these little guys as house plants. So are you ever watering them? Yes, they do need to be watered, but very, very, um, you know, seldom. And in the winter? Uh, yes, they're from winter mm. rainfall climates. So I water these in winter and spring and hardly at all in summer. Yep. Only if they're looking really and sad. And do
0: they want a lot of light?
1: Yes, they do need a lot of sun. So, th- so where you, they don't
0: put, you don't keep them in a shady spot?
1: No, absolutely. They're, they're kept in full sun, full belting sun in summer. Um, if you keep them in too much shade, they w- will, uh, the, the stem between the, 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 the Lego blocks elongates, the elongate, and yeah. they look a bit floppy and a bit sad. sad so right. to keep them nice and tight and dense, they need to be in full belting sun. So that's stacking crassulas because they're perfect little desk ornaments, but as a desk
2: ornament, they're not going to um, they're not going to survive in the shade. No, only if you take them out
0: regularly. Now we've got another call, so I might go to that. We have got Carol from Fernie Creek. Carol, are you there? Yes,
5: I am.
3: Hi,
0: good Um, morning.
5: The Fernie Creek Flower Show is on today.
0: I'm terribly sorry I haven't already mentioned it, but it's best to mention it this time of the day anyway.
5: Yes, yes. I went yesterday and it's always magic. You can lo- through the plant stall and you find something that's different that you haven't got in your garden, but you haven't got a clue where you're going to plant it anyway.
0: It is one of the great things about the Ferny Creek um, stalls that you do find quite rare things. Tell people yes. where Ferny Creek is.
5: Uh, Hilton Road, Sassafras. It used to be Fernie Creek, but now it's Sassafras. And it's well signposted. It's on the road from Ferntree Gully around through to... Where does it go to? Um,
0: <laughs> yes. Lilydale, I think. Yeah. Yes, yes. it probably. And you does. can come
5: from Ferntree Gully or you can come up Mountain Highway or up Mount Dandenong Road. And it's well signposted uh, how you get to the actual place. They've got big green banners there.
0: And when you go, I think it's really important to remember to walk through the garden because it's a very beautiful garden with some fabulous, fabulous things, and some which are in flower now, some of the South African stuff is particularly well, the thing is to
5: get the time because by the time you've looked at the exhibits and talked to this one and that one and looked through all the plants very carefully, you know, and had your cup of tea and scones, well, you're worn out.
0: Is the sausage sizzle on?
5: The sausage is on, and they've got those beautiful sandwiches and soup, I
0: love lovely homemade
5: seasons. soup, and the Devonshire tea, and they're all at reasonable prices.
0: Yes, and I think that's right. Well, let's let's encourage people to go to Fernie Creek today, uh, and yes. to have a good shop, look for beautiful plants, and also go for a walk through this stunning garden, oh, and have
5: a beautiful afternoon tea too. What more could you want? Absolutely. And they're open from ten o'clock today. Till four.
0: 10 till 4. Thank you very much, yep. Carol.
5: Yeah,
0: okay then. Thank bye you. Bye bye. Bye. So, there's that to do today. Fernie Creek in one direction, and the other direction to head to is Bollibeck, which is open for the open garden scheme. It's the last opening for the beginning of winter. I think Stephen Ryan's garden is going to be open in winter but I'm not quite sure when but there won't be any more open gardens for a little while so it'll be a wonderful thing to do to go to Bolabek, which, which is open today at 370 Mount Macedon Road. So either there if, you're on, if you want to head west or if you want to head east go to Ferny Creek where you will definitely find some unusual plants. It's one of the places and of course last weekend there was the Yarra Valley Plant Festival which is in Wondon which is another place where you could get unusual plants and that will be happening again in spring the 23rd and 24th of October and the Mount Massenden Plant Fair will be happening the 2nd and 3rd of October so there'll be some exciting things coming up in October so remember some weekends must be kept free in October for those sorts of visits now, I thought the one other thing we should quickly talk about is what we would be planting at the moment because I have heard nursery people say that, oh, business has slowed down. And I, do, I mean, I'm, mm. I'm going to plant coriander this weekend. I find if I plant coriander at this time of year, it doesn't bolt and, I can, and I've got it nice and reliably. And I love the green coriander seed in my curries. Put it in at the very last moment. Don't cook it. Just have it as an additive mm, at yum. the end. I love green coriander seed. So I'll be planting coriander.
2: I've, I've sown some carrots and some beets this week. I, um, I like to have a sequential sowing. Basically the only month where I don't sow, sow some of those root crops is pretty much July. Uh, in my climate, I can actually get germination. And um, In fact, at this time of the year when it's cooler and not getting direct sun, it's much easier to manage direct sowing something like carrots in the peak of summer. I've got to put some shade cloth over and keep them moist until um, they germinate. This time of the year, I can do it without doing that. So.
1: Amazing. For me, it's all over Red Rover. Um, yeah. So I have to have my, my winter crops planted uh, at the end of January. Uh, which me. loot, yeah. yeah, Because they have to be up to full size by Anzac Day And if they're not, they're then stopped. it won't happen yeah. So I, I sowed all of my winter crops at the end of January And I've got you know big broccolis this far around A couple of feet across And all my carrots It's, it's
2: interesting, broccolis is too late for me Definitely, yeah. the brassicas is too late for me to, to to sow or plant seedlings now I have yeah. to get them Because the soil is cooling down But I'm fine by The last few years I've experimented with, with root crops And I'm still getting good growth uh, at this time of the year Mm. Amazing.
0: Yes, I planted, my, I planted beets about three or four weeks ago, mm. um, which, is, which I'm pleased about. And, of course, I'll just keep planting lettuce and yeah. silver beet and all those sort of things right through.
2: The other thing I was going to say about your, your comment about... So, so it, the last week or two, the last couple of weeks, I suppose, we've hit some cooler weather and a lot of nursery folk are saying that the, their sales are dropping off, you with know, people are sort of switching off the garden phase, if you like, which is really strange because... Now is the time for planting, it's really. literally the best time. Yeah, now, getting a bit, especially after a season like we've had, there's a fair bit of moisture in the ground. You know, if you plant basically anything, whether it be a dormant perennial or herbaceous perennial or a tree or a shrub or whatever, this is the perfect time mm-hmm. to have them settle in. Um, in fact, planting in spring, is, which is kind of when everyone switches on their, their garden thinking, it, you can still plant in spring, clearly, because if it's a container stock, it's still growing. But this time of the year, things will settle in better, and you will get better growth if you mm-hmm. plant at this time of the year. I'm not sure what you do in terms of planting. You're replanting.
1: Oh, a- absolutely. I mean, I, I think of this is the best time of year too because the soil's still warm enough that plants mm. can make root growth, even though the tops are dormant. They're not they're not stressed by heat and so forth. So, yeah. Mm. So get planting, people.
0: And um, I'll be moving too because I have various... Um, m- 16 years old, there's just things that are roses, for example, that if I don't move them, I might as well just let them die. They're not getting Oh, so you'll sun. be digging up and moving plants. Digging yeah. up and moving yep. plants. Yep. yep. Definitely. Yeah, there's in always the that reshuffle. Back to
2: where we started. I yeah. mean, Simon's napalming his garden. You're <laughs> just moving things. I'm of just yours. moving <laughs> things, yeah.
1: Actually, it's worth mentioning uh, regarding Bolabeck. Um They've just put in a fantastic new... Um, they, they used to have an old rill from the 1930s. Yes, yes. And it was very, very overgrown. There was no water in it, in it anymore. And, and so they they've completely it. redone that. They've got a beautiful flowing stream now. And we've just put in... Uh, uh, Bridget and Hugh Robert. And a clients of mine, we've just put in a big planting of uh, native ferns all around it. So it's got polysticums and Blechnum nudum and blechnum, uh adudia aspera and Blechnum otsii. So it's all just kind of, well, not yet, but it will be knee deep in ferns. So it's worth going and seeing this new project all under the shade of their magnificent oak tree.
0: Yes, I so wanted a rill in my garden, but I'm just a bit too steep. Yeah, it yeah. Just
1: what what oak is it that they've got? It's um, Quercus rober. so it's the one oak. we call English oak, but it's yeah. actually native to you know, Turkey as well. Yeah. We could equally call it Turkish oak. No.
2: Well, it's like, it's like the Algerian oak, which, Quercus canariensis, Canary, yeah. which is looks very similar, mm-hmm. um, except
0: it's much bigger.
2: B- bigger and and pro- potentially a bit more drought hardy too. Mm. You know, and but a terrific shade tree, yeah. beautiful, and tree. For, for gardens that are in fire prone areas um whether it be english oak or oaks don't burn Who's do ever heard burn. of oak oil no they 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 and beautiful deep shade put i mean they're, they're part of that, that sort of management strategy around fire mm. retent, fire retarding um, you know, we've got a number of oaks in our, in our list that and we're promoting thing, as fire-retardant oaks.
0: The other thing, I so wish I had oaks around my place. I've got eucalypts around my own, and they're beautiful and I love them, but, oh, God, do they throw branches at me. Mm, yeah. Exactly. All yeah. the time. And
1: the leaf mould of oaks is just, it's crack it's, the plants. It's yeah. so good.
2: And so much of it. You get an abundance every year at a timing. Oh, Algerian mm. oaks actually drop their leaves less consistently mm. because they can hang on to their leaves mm. and see them. There's a, there's a great specimen in Blackwood behind the pub that, that pretty much stays in leaf right the way through to they push the new leaves, push the old leaf off.
1: We
0: have one last call. Carol from East Bentley is ringing us. Hello, Carol.
6: Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I have two persimmon and I actually bought the persimmon because I wanted to get the um, autumn colour but they're both evergreen. I bought them at different times. Now, I can't remember how long I've had them, but they're sizable plants. One is, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this, it's non astringent gyro dwarf, Diaspraece's khaki or something. Yep, that's The, that's the, right the thing. other one, I don't know what it is, but it's evergreen also. They're both evergreen and it produces little what must be uh, persimmon, little tiny hard balls. And I'm wondering, does that need another tree, to um, a male tree, to this, to make it, uh, it? It it produces these balls in abundance. Yes. I'm
2: I'm, I'm a bit con- confused because if yes. it is Diospyros kaki or any any of the, the persimmons, they're definitely deciduous.
0: Deciduous. Oh. I've got a persimmon. It's definitely deciduous. It's completely on its own. This is the first year it has properly fruited, and I think that's because I've had lots of rain, and I've adopted a new dog because its family was deported, and this dog, who is 53 kilos, eats the persimmons straight off the tree. (laughs) Okay. So she is having a brilliant time.
1: The only thing I can think of, Carol, is that it's in. Maybe you've got it in such a warm spot that it doesn't get sufficient cold in winter to drop its leaves. It might just hang on to them a bit long. Could it be that, do you think? No. It's, no? it's definitely
6: evergreen. Oh, no. It doesn't produce. That one doesn't produce anything. It just grows. And it grows. I think it's probably. Someone's mixed it up because it's got fruit lovers, farmers' choice, ideal selection for home gardeners, dwarf, and non astringent. So that hasn't produced any fruit. It produces little flowers and then they die off. Mm. And the other persimmon, as I say, is an evergreen. That one produces these little tiny fruit. Seeds, perhaps you miniscule.
1: could te- text us a message, uh, text us a photo of the tree, perhaps.
0: I'll do that. Yes. Can you give me the text number? Um, yes, I will. It is oh four double eight, eight oh nine eight
1: double five. There is a wild species of persimmon, and one and one f- one from Asia and one from North America that have small fruits about the size of a date, and they're quite pointed at the end, and they produce them in huge quantities. Um, but they're uh, deciduous. They're as all well. deciduous. Yeah. Yeah.
6: No, these, well, uh, these, these both definitely aren't. Send deciduous. us a photo, Carol. I've got some
0: Okay, that I'll could, do could that. It
6: could be a mix-up at the nursery. Yeah, Carol, sounds like a labelling mix-up. Yes.
0: Maybe you could also try sending it to 3cr.gardening at com, and we will talk about it next week. So if you send it both Just on... Just a minute. It was 3cr.gardening yes. Yes. at gmail.com. And that way we've got two ways which we hopefully will receive your photo and Stephen will be here next week and we'll make him talk to you about it. Oh, oh great. We'll hand that one to Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Thanks, Carol. Thanks, Bye. Carol. Bye-bye. Bye. Yes, I think that's um, a bit difficult, that one. Labelling
1: mix-ups do happen at nurseries from time to time. It's, uh, it's not unknown. So it could be just a case of that. It sounds like it is to me. I mean, it's because it sounds like Carol had the label. She's reading
2: it. Mm. But there's, I've, there's no persimmons that I know of. Mm. I mean, and in fact, persimmons do have a spectacular autumn um, display. It's of one Polish of the reasons. But yeah, I think yeah. My, mm. but
0: mine has never fruited before, and I'm mm. sure it's the rain. Yeah, okay. I think this is the difference. Mm. I did think maybe it needed a partner, but honestly. How the, old is it? Oh, I don't know. Eight. Okay, seven yeah. or eight. Yeah. And, uh, and this Luna this dog i've adopted and of course being 53 kilos she's big so she she managed to eat a lot of persimmon after she'd taken the seventh the other day wow i said stop <laughs> oh we've got one more call have we got time yes but we'll have to be quick it's on line eight hello christine are you hello, there um, hello panel um, I was
4: just trying to catch up with um, the veggie man talking about carrots. Um, I grow carrots every now and again, but I don't have much success with getting the right flavour. When we eat them, the the outside tends to be um, a little bit bitter, and I'm just wondering if there's any secret to making them taste a bit sweeter.
2: Ah, okay. Um, So it could be... It could be a number of things, actually. So carrots to grow well, carrots don't like a very very rich soil. Um, so if you've got a really rich soil, they'll they'll sort of grow quickly, fork, and you can get some sort of bland flavouring. Um, if they're grown in in harsh conditions or stressed, water stressed from time to time, they can. Or, or if they're left too long in the ground, that's when they tend to go bitter. Um, so I'd, I'd, are either of those things make any sense?
4: Um. I usually pick them to thin them out, and even when they're very young, they're a little bit disser on the outside. Yeah.
2: yeah okay. So then, it, then it could be down to which variety, because there are a number of different types of, of carrots. Okay. Um, which, which particular varieties are you getting?
4: Oh, I, you've got me now. I okay. don't really know. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. But what, what would you suggest?
2: Well, I would suggest. Clearly, I'm biased, and I would suggest you go to the Diggers catalogue and have a look at our varieties. Uh, Oh, okay. And uh, and our varieties are, in fact, the the one that's probably the easiest selection to grow is our heirloom mix um, because it mixes in some of the purples, the yellows, the whites. Because carrots weren't always orange, um, and you therefore you get a a nice, um, a nice little colourful display on your plate, and you get a bit of diversity. Um, So I'd I'd suggest that one. And I pretty much, as I said before, I sow them, you know, pretty much year round because they are a fairly long crop. Um, and that, mean I, that means I can harvest them through the year. The other great thing about carrots is that you don't have to pick them all at once and you can just pick them as mm-hmm. you need them. Um, so they're you know, stored it. in mm-hmm. the garden if you've got enough room. Yeah.
4: And, and you're, you, you're in an area like Frankston?
2: Yeah, think? I'm in the Mornington Peninsula. Yeah. So, and my yes, soil Frank. is actually, I'm in sort of the Red Hill clay soil, so it's a, the, the volcanic soil. Um, the, the other thing to say about carrots is whilst they mm-hmm. don't like a lot of nutrition or fertility, they don't like a heavy soil either that'll that'll sort of stunt them and fork them so if you can sandy soils are actually best if, if you if you can provide those conditions but i've worked my soil enough so that i can get some nice straight carrots now
0: i've never grown a straight carrot <laughs> <laughs> still edible They're the Still thing. edible. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they don't look right but they taste fine <laughs> yeah. i'm sure the yeah. damn dog will like them <laughs> <laughs> get into digging. Okay, thanks, for, <laughs> thanks very All much right, well, th- thanks for that, those tips Okay, Okay, Christine. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. Yes, I'd love to grow a straight carrot, but you know, some things I just I accept. Well, the the straightness
2: doesn't matter. It's how they taste. Yes, exactly. And my soil. And in that soup you make, it doesn't matter whether they were straight or crooked. Doesn't that's all?
0: No. And and my soil is red and heavy. Yeah. So if I want to, I need to grow them in something else. You know, there's a little,
2: there's a little stumpy ones exactly. like Paris Market, Paris you know, Market, which are really good in heavy clay soils because they don't, they don't grow a long cylinder.
1: Royal Chantenay, yeah. big muscular carrot yeah. just punches its way yeah. through the clay. So s- s- selection is important. Yeah, though, and, and you know. I think
2: the Chantenay group, uh, you know, that, that stumpy kind of, they're robust little carrots. Be beautiful, in my, in my orange
0: soup. <laughs> yes, it sounds absolutely perfect. Well, we're nearly at the end of our show, so thank you very much, you two. It's been a we've just had a lovely text. Where am I? Thank you for a really interesting programme. We're enjoying your knowledge. You're able to pass it on so easily. Oh, oh thank, thank you,
1: that's you very wonderful. much.
0: So thank you, boys. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. We've, Pleasure. I think we've done a very good job here. And we'll see you again soon.
2: You will indeed. Yeah. Thank Thanks, you. Bye bye.